Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we have again this morning lifted our voices to you in song. We have lifted our eyes to you. We've set our our gaze onto your beauty and onto your majesty. Considered all your many attributes, your many excellencies. We've lifted our minds to meditate on your grace. On the fact this morning that you are the faithful one, that you are unchanging. And so, Father, as we've considered this thing, these things, we've already, as we've worshipped you, as we've exalted you, we can affirm that together we have had a rich time of, of worship. And so I pray now that you would aid us and help us as we peer into your precious word, as we worship through the word, especially as we see Christ, as we even now relive those days, those hours actually, before he would go to the cross. Lord, from a human standpoint, we, we see events that seem so unfair in view of who Christ is and in view of all his glories. We pray this morning, though, even now, that we might also see a Savior who willingly went to the cross bearing sins that he never himself committed. Help us, we pray, in these events to see both the darkness of our own sin and the glories of Christ. Help us to see in your Son love and grace, forgiveness, obedience. And so we ask that you would clear away all that would distract us and all that might prohibit us from seeing clearly. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the most common complaints that we have as human beings is in the form of a quick, terse, three-word sentence. That's not fair. In any family where there's more than one child, the cry of that's not fair will echo quite often throughout a home when one boy or one girl perceives that their brother or sister has received better treatment than they have or they get better gifts than the other or one gets worse snacks than the other or when one has been asked to do something that requires less work than they have. Why do they get more candy than I did? That's not fair. Or why do they get to take out the garbage and I have to clean the toilets? That's not fair. That's children. But as adults, we're not immune from that same complaint, are we? We may not always say it, but it sure crosses our minds, doesn't it? In our family these days, we're on a bit of an eating healthy food kick. And I have to admit that I have grumbled inside often that it's not fair that every single thing that tastes good is not good for you. If you're a student, you might think it's not fair that you study like crazy and get a C while the person in the desk beside you hardly cracks their books open and gets an A on their test. Or if you work as an employee, you might think it's not fair that you don't, didn't get a pay raise that you thought you deserved while your colleague got a pay raise that 
they did not deserve. And it's not just in comparison. Sometimes the circumstances of life just seem unfair. Maybe it has to do with sickness. Maybe it's a death in your family. Or maybe it's just that life didn't, has not turned out the way you expected, even though you seem to do everything right. In your estimation, that's not fair. You deserve better. Often that kind of thinking is legitimate. We have to admit, it, it does not seem to be fair that certain negative things happen, certain trials happen in our lives. Why do they happen to some people and not others? Why do things turn out the way they do, even though we did everything the right way? Often, though, that feeling of unfairness comes from a lack of perspective. We're prone to become too self-focused sometimes. As bad as we think we have it, if we truly look around, we would see that somebody always has it worse. Well, there's one event in history that can legitimately be said to be unfair. If anyone had the right to say that's not fair, it would be Jesus. In the grand scheme of things, here is a man who never sinned, either in thought or in deed. And yet he was treated in the most unimaginable and inhumane way possible. He, legit, did nothing wrong. And yet he was punished by cruel death. And even before that, cruel suffering, cruel mocking, cruel abuse. The circumstances that led even to him being arrested and how he was treated in those hours before he went to the cross was totally unfair. He was treated unfairly by his accusers. And he was even treated unfairly by his closest friends and followers. He did nothing to deserve this treatment. Yet the amazing fact is that Jesus ultimately, get this, embraced the unfair. Jesus embraced the unfair. In fact, when it comes to Jesus, unfair, in many ways, is a main point of his life. What seems unfair to us, namely the unfair in Jesus' life and death, is wonderfully and gloriously transformed from the category of unfair into another category called grace. Or from another angle, mercy. He was treated unfairly so that we would receive grace. In other words... Jesus received what he did not deserve so that we would not receive what we do deserve. Jesus received what appears unfair so that we would not receive what is fair. Things always shine brighter when there's a dark background. Isn't that true? Photographers will sometimes use a black backdrop or a dark backdrop to highlight the subject of the picture. Well, in the events leading up to the cross, we see how the darkness and ugliness of the human condition serves as the backdrop that will highlight the brightness and the beauty of God's amazing grace. 
in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what's going on through this whole narrative leading to the cross. We have to keep that in mind. Everything that's going on here, even the very cross itself, serves to illumine the gracious love of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And that dark backdrop is human rebellion. It's human self-centeredness, human self-preservation, human pride, human hatred, human evil, human sin. And the subject where God wants to set his focus is on Christ's perfect obedience, his sacrifice, his love, his humility, his excellencies, his glories. In this section that we're about to look into, the dark backdrop is represented by the Jewish authorities and by Jesus' most upfront disciple and follower. That's the surprising part in here. It's the the curve. So look now at John 18, verses 12 to 27. John chapter 18, verses 12 to 27. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews... So let me just uh, back up a little bit. And the disciples before this... And Jesus had already met with a mob led by Judas in a garden just outside Jerusalem there in verses 1 to 11, where Jesus, as we learned last time, if you were here, took control of the situation in which the mob wanted to arrest Jesus. And and that brings us to this section here in, in chapter 18, verse 12. And so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers that were there in that garden arrested Jesus and bound him. First... They led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Why do you ask me? When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. And so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? 
He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. So here we have the Savior of the world, denied and tried. This is shocking, isn't it? Jesus is brought to trial by his own people, by his own kinsmen, the Jews. And then, if that's not bad enough, he is disowned by his most prominent follower. From our vantage point, Jesus would be justified here in saying, that's not fair. Especially after all he'd done for them. But that's not what Jesus is thinking at all. In fact, not even close. This is why he was sent. But that's just the backdrop. More than that, this, in many ways, encapsulates in the hour's before the most momentous transforming event in all of human history, why God sent his son. This encapsulates why God sent his son. In this scene, we see the depths to which human sin can go. But this also illustrates Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, namely, why and how God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. This demonstrates his love. This demonstrates his mercy. That Jesus would save someone like Peter can only be explained by God's rich mercy and by his great love with which he loved us. So let's look at that dark backdrop and that injustice. It starts in verse 12 with his with this um, alliance, really, of Roman soldiers and Jewish uh, religious authorities arresting Jesus and having him bound. So now you can picture the scene, right? Right before this, Peter almost started a full-scale riot by slashing off the ear of one of the high priest's servants. But Jesus quickly diffused that situation, protected his disciples, and gave himself up. And at that point... We don't see this in the text. That it's at this point that all the disciples likely scatter. And here we are. But just think about how ridiculous it sounds when it says that they bound Jesus. Maybe irony is actually a better word to describe it than ridiculous. The very one who, back in John 8, verse 36, said, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed is now arrested and himself bound. The the very one who came to bring liberty to the captives, as he says in Luke 4, is himself bound. The irony is in the fact that Jesus is bound so that we would be freed from the shackles of sin. Jesus is bound so that we might be freed. You see, tying up Jesus would not do what it's intended to do here. It would not prevent him from doing the Father's will and from accomplishing the Father's salvation. Tying up Jesus would actually serve to accomplish his will. Even nailing Jesus to a cross would not keep Jesus from accomplishing our salvation. Nailing Jesus to a cross actually served to accomplish our salvation. 
Then in verse 13, we see that Jesus gets marched over to his first interrogation. His first interrogation of really four kind of trials, if you want to call them those, that happened before he would go to the cross. So let me remind you that there here, as we're reading in John, that there are four Gospels. They all recount the same thing, and they all harmonize with each other, but they each include a few different details here and there on how this went down, how it all happened. If we were to put all four together, we would get a full picture, but we're going to stick just with John's version. And I mention that because John arranges his material here in an interesting way. Did you notice when I read it, that it goes back and forth. In verse 13 and 14, he talks there about the trial or the questioning. And then the scene shifts to Peter's denial. And then it goes back to the trial again, and then it ends with Peter again. That had me asking, why why did John do it this way? Why not do one scene, finish that one off, and then do the other scene? Instead of going back and forth. Now, it might be that he, that he just reports it in the order that it happened. But I think he's doing it intentionally to highlight the contrast between Jesus and Peter. And we'll see that contrast as we keep on going. But like I said, there are two scenes. One involves Jesus before the Jewish, Jewish religious authorities. And not far away, the other involves the disciple Peter who had left Jesus, but is now back, sort of, hanging around in the distance. He's there because he wants to know what's going to happen to Jesus. Well, the first scene is there in verses 12 to 14. We have a bound Jesus. He's taken by uh, this posse, made up probably of quite a, at least a couple of hundred people, of Roman soldiers and Jewish officers. He's taken to Annas. And really, this first section, these first few verses, just really explain who Annas is. It says that he's the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest. Now, there might be a little bit of confusion here, because if you peek down at verse 19, if you look there for a second, it says that the high priest questioned Jesus. And then down in verse 24, it says that Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So it's confusing because you start to wonder, well, who is the high priest? Is it Caiaphas, as it says in verse 13 and verse 24? Or is it Annas, the one that's questioning Jesus there in verse 19? Well, the answer is yes. Caiaphas is officially the high priest at this time, but Annas is, in effect, functionally the high priest. Annas is the man with the influence. Even though he no longer held the position, he was the high priest at one time, but he's basically still in charge. He was kind of like the patriarch or the godfather of the high priestly family, of which Caiaphas was a part. And he was still called the high priest, kind of like uh, U.S. presidents. You know how former U.S. presidents are still called President Clinton or President Obama or President Bush? It's the same sort of thing in one way, still called that, but unlike past presidents who really, they don't really have any power, but this high priest did. Annas was still the guy who called the shots. Any kind of decision that was made 
They always pursued Annas' blessing. And so that's where they take Jesus first. They figure if Annas would condemn Jesus to death, they could just then take him to the real high priest, Caiaphas, and get him to rubber stamp the decision. So that's Annas. And that's where Jesus is. And it's likely not at this point in the temple courts. It's, it's likely that he is where Annas lived, in his palace or in his house, which is really just kind of a bigger compound. And Caiaphas probably lived on the same compound. It was just sort of separated. There was a house there. There was a compound in the middle. And then Caiaphas and probably some other of the family members lived on that same compound. Which is where we find Peter in verses 15 to 18. We see that Peter and another disciple had followed Jesus. And we can't know for sure, but it's pretty likely that John here is that other disciple. He's likely talking about himself. The, the other disciple had some kind of an in. We're not sure what kind of influence or how the high priest knew him. But he had some kind of an in with the high priest's family, which gets him access to the courtyard. And so he goes in with Jesus, and then he notices that Peter couldn't come in, so he goes back and he vouches for Peter, so Peter gets into the courtyard as well. Now, I can imagine it kind of like this, that there's a little gatehouse before you get into the compound. Kind of, actually, if you look over at the, at the, am I pointing in the right direction, at the home hardware warehouse, there is this kind of thing before you enter the yard. There's just this little hut where somebody sits, it's sort of the, the person that, that mans the gates, or, or, might be a woman too. That woman's the gate. Um, so and here, here in this one, you have a little, you have a servant girl who's who's manning the the, the, the gatehouse. So there's always someone on duty there to open the gate and let people in. People who have access get in, and people who don't have access are denied entry. Well, here in verse 16, it talks about a servant girl who kept watch at the door. The other disciple spoke to this girl, and that's how, she, how he gets Peter in there. So, so you kind of got these two scenes in your mind now. You've got Jesus in front of some people, meeting with the, this, this high priest, in effect, and you've got Peter there in the, in the, in the compound, at the, at, at the high priest family compound, and, and, and he's just outside, and this is where all this happens. And the other thing is, we find out sort of that this is happening all in the middle of the night, early in the morning hours. And we know that because it says it's cold out there and they're warming themselves by a fire. So let's go back and find out what's going on. So in verse 14, we find out not only about Annas, John reports that we already know something about his son-in-law, Caiaphas. See it there in verse 14, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Well, when did that happen? Well, that happened back in John chapter 11. Right after Jesus had raised Lazarus, he, he had really started gaining a following, a huge following. So some people went and reported what was going on to the Pharisees, who thought Jesus was gaining too big of a following. And if that happened then the Romans might get upset and they would take away all Jewish freedom and they would take away the, the, the power that the Pharisees had worked so hard to get. And that was a problem. And they didn't know how to deal with it. 
But someone steps forward with a solution to the problem. It's a really easy solution. And that someone is Caiaphas. He says there's an easy answer to this, and that is that we take out Jesus. John 11, verse 50, it's better that one man should die for the people rather than to have the whole nation perish. Of course, his prediction comes comes true. Caiaphas becomes kind of an unwitting prophet. It comes true in a way that Caiaphas never expected. But how does that connect to John 18? Simply in this way. Jesus' fate was already predetermined. Jesus' fate was already predetermined. They were just looking for a way to take him out. And if it would be a legal way, that would be good. If it wasn't legal, that would be okay too. And that will become obvious when we get down to verses 19 to 24. But first, back to the courtyard and to Peter and this gatekeeper servant girl there in verse 17. So Jesus had already gone through the gate. He'd likely passed by Jesus and that whole entourage of of soldiers and officers. He's in the house, maybe even in sight of the gatehouse. Maybe they could see what was going on there. Might not have been able to hear it, but they could see it. And now she lets Peter into that courtyard. But she makes a connection, and she asks him something. And really an innocent question, really not enough to, to make Peter have to deny Christ. She asks you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Notice the way she asks it. She, she asks it almost expecting a, a not answer, right? Are you, all, you also are not one of this man's disciples. And Peter falls for it with three words that he would forever regret and likely never forget. I am not. Struck me even comparing that to last week when Jesus identifies himself and steps forward and says, I am he. And here's Peter saying, I am not. Why? Why would he do that? Scared? Ashamed, likely? This was so quick. His, his fall came so fast, especially when you consider that he was so insistent and so confident that he would never do exactly that just a few hours before this. John 13, verse 37, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Or in what Pastor Andrew read from Luke 22, Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Mark 14, he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. How could he fail so fast and so easily with such an innocuous question from someone, the door gal, that didn't even have the power to do anything to him? Well, before we answer that, let's go back to the trial. Verse 18 says, Peter went over to a fire where some servants and officers were was standing and warming, and, and he was there standing and warming himself. Now hold that thought, because we'll see that same line in verse 25. But let's go back inside the house. Just stick with us now. We're going back and forth here. So here we see the high priest questioning Jesus. Again, this is dripping with irony. An earthly 
pseudo-high priest questioning the eternal heavenly high priest. But the other thing that's exposed here is that this is a sham of a trial. This is a sham of a trial. This is no trial at all. This is actually a murder plot. You see, the Jewish system, the legal system that was in place at that time to deal with people accused ahead of time, that Jewish system was set up so that the accused would be pretty much guaranteed a fair trial. In order for an accusation to be heard, there had to be witnesses. It was set up so that the accused could not even incriminate himself or be interrogated. They could not have a trial at night. And they had to wait at least a day, at least 24 hours, in cases of capital punishment, just to make sure that that they had time to think about such a serious sentence and to make sure that they got it right and weren't just deciding based on emotion. Well, without going into details, let's just say that this trial failed on every count. One scholar says that this whole thing should have been thrown out as a mistrial at this first step. Another expert on law says that Jesus was condemned by the most merciful and careful system of judicial process known to our race. The most merciful and careful system of judicial process known to our race. In terms of jurisprudence, he says, no travesty of justice ever took place that was more shocking than this one. Verse 18 tells us it happened at night. Verse 19 doesn't even go into the details on the line of questioning other than saying he was being questioned about his disciples and his teaching. The fact that he was questioned was itself illegal. He was interrogated, there's no witnesses, and there wasn't even a credible accusation or charges. Judas would not have been credible in light of the fact he was a friend of Jesus and in light of the fact he was a traitor on the other side. His motives would have been questioned and it wouldn't have even been, been deemed as something to, to take into account. But in verse 20 and 21, Jesus challenges the high priest by saying, hey, I've been speaking openly. He hasn't been hiding anything. There are plenty of witnesses that could have been brought forward if they were following the law. And look at their response to Jesus here, argument. Verse 22 There's really no verbal response. They don't say anything. All that happens is one of the officers struck Jesus by hand. And Jesus says in verse 23, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if I said what is right, why do you strike me? And then right after that, again, no comeback. This is over. Jesus was questioned, yet he became the questioner. He's accused, yet he becomes the judge. And so Annas just sends Jesus on to the next guy. He can't do anything with him. There's nothing on which to charge Jesus. And that's what Jesus is trying to show here. He's not not here trying to get out of this. This is the start of a string of lines here in the Gospel of John that we're going to see as we go on. And from after this, they mostly come from Pilate, that show us Jesus is innocent. That, That Jesus had done nothing wrong. That as Pilate says, there is no guilt in him. See that in verse 29 of this chapter, in chapter 19, in verse 4, and in verse 6. 
Jesus was indeed completely innocent. Yet he's arrested and bound and questioned. This whole scene in front of the religious authorities that hated him and treated him like a criminal shows the evil side of human nature. Annas and Caiaphas, if you read the other Gospels, Herod, Pilate, all the Roman authorities represent unregenerate, unconverted humanity. These are people that encounter Jesus, yet reject him out of hand. Some are indifferent. They don't care. Others feel threatened. Some see very clearly who he is, yet they hate him. They oppose him. This represents the side of humankind that's hard-hearted toward Jesus. That's the only way to explain this. They had already determined his fate, and nothing could change their minds. And while they think they can put Jesus on trial and judge him, it's them that will ultimately be judged by him. The good news is that a few people, even within this group of religious and authority and structure called the Sanhedrin that had been set up, some of these group of religious people in this authority structure that was set up were saved. They saw Jesus for who he really was, and they were transformed by his grace. One example of that is Nicodemus, the same guy who came to Jesus at night over in John 3, We're going to find out what happened to him. We're going to find out more about him later. But that shows that if you have not yet believed in, or if you have not yet received Jesus as your Savior, you still have time to respond to him. But what about Peter? If those who put Jesus on trial represent the unregenerate, who does Peter represent? Answer? Peter represents the regenerate. Those who love Jesus, those who affirm loyalty to Jesus, yet those who fail Jesus. If even Peter could fail so miserably, I can fail him too. You can fail him too. So in verse 25, the scene shifts back to Peter. This is kind of like, meanwhile, back at the ranch, or meanwhile, back at the fire where Peter was standing and warming himself. It uses the exact same words as the verse, as the verse previous, verse 18. And here we see the contrast from Jesus. They're, they're both being questioned. Jesus in the house, Peter in the courtyard, But that's where the similarities end. While Jesus was standing firm, Peter was wavering. Jesus was faithful. Peter was faithless. Jesus was courageous. Peter, when push came to shove, was a coward. Jesus was self-sacrificing. Peter was self-preserving. Jesus did nothing wrong when questioned by the authorities. Peter couldn't respond truthfully, even when questioned by people who had no relative authority. He failed not one time, but twice and three times. And this section ends by those ominous words, and at once the rooster crowed. It was over. 
Yet, for Peter, in the grace of God, it was not over. I mentioned last week that Judas, in the last scene, is never heard from again. Annas and Caiaphas are never heard from again after this scene. They're all remembered in the pages of Scripture, at least, for their last act, an outright rejection of the Savior. But Peter is not forgotten. You see, Peter represents those who believe, yet who still sin, sometimes grievously. If Peter, who was so tight with Jesus, could deny him, so can we. Like Peter, we too can be fickle. We are more than willing to proclaim our allegiance here at church. We're more than willing to proclaim our allegiance to Jesus when the circumstances are right. When push comes to shove, are we willing to acknowledge him? Or even when you're just standing and warming yourself around a fire. In other words, when you're sitting around with your non-Christian friends. And they ask you something about your faith. Or maybe they want you to do something with them that might compromise your faith. How do you respond? We can be fickle that way. We are far too easily swayed. We are far too easily influenced away from Christ. Like Peter, when we're weak, we are prone to sin. Sing that song sometimes, right? Prone to wander. Oh, Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. That's the dark backdrop. But that dark backdrop serves to highlight God's grace, does it not? You see, Peter, or Jesus, restores Peter. In a beautiful scene when we get to chapter 21. And it's there that Even though Peter had denied Jesus how many times? Times three. He would confess his love for Jesus three times in chapter 21. And Jesus would restore him three times. would say, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Do you remember the other part Pastor Andrew read back in Luke 22? Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded that he might sift you like wheat. Sifting and shaking. He had to shake that stuff really hard to get that, get it off. That's what happened to Peter here in this courtyard. Then he says, Satan demanded that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. This is Jesus saying that. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Peter denied Jesus. He sinned terribly. But Jesus had prayed that his faith would be preserved. Brother and sister, Christian, this shines the light of God's amazing grace and mercy. We are all weak. We all sin. We all fail Jesus. But Jesus prays that our faith may not fail ultimately. And so when we do fail, like Peter, we can be restored. We can be forgiven. And this is owing to God's mercy and grace and forgiveness alone which is highlighted in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, while Peter was out in the courtyard denying Jesus, Jesus was over in the house getting unfairly 
sentenced to die for people like Peter, for people like you and me. He could have said at that point, that's not fair, and escaped that punishment. But he stayed, and he took the punishment that, to be fair, belonged to us, so that we who repent and put our faith in Jesus might not receive his judgment, but would receive his grace and mercy, his undeserved, his unfair grace and mercy. He was treated unfairly so that we receive grace. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and grace in time of need. Father, this is indeed a dark cloud that hung over Jesus in those hours before he went to the cross. And it's dark because we see in those reflected in these events our own evil hearts. We confess that we too, all too often, deny our Lord in many ways, in our failure to acknowledge him, in our fear, in our lack of courage. We fail him in our, our wavering affections. We fail him in our lack of holiness. But in the backdrop of this darkness, we also see the glory of your grace in the person of our Savior. We see salvation. We see mercy. We see hope. We see forgiveness. We see restoration. May this spur us on in the strength of the Lord, and only in the strength of the Lord, to greater zeal, to greater obedience, to greater courage, to greater faith as we seek to serve you. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.